Welcome, everybody, to episode 104 of the Whiskey and Watches podcast. Uh, this is going to be another kind of a fun uh, little field trip for us tonight because we're focusing on what's in the glass again. Uh, we've done several of these episodes in the past, uh, whether it be on site at a distillery, across the pond with our buddy uh, at Whiskey Blender Dude, Sandy, uh, over there at Glen Levette, among other brands. And tonight we have with us Corey Fitzsimmons from Method Spirits. So, Corey, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. We are are pretty excited. We've been sampling uh, sampling your wares here uh, recently. I got to say, uh, I'm really excited about this topic because uh, vermouth is not something that I am. I will say I'm I'm quite familiar with drinking it, but I'm not familiar with the process, what goes into how you how you make it, kind of what what drives that flavor profile for all the drinks sure. that I really love. So I'm really excited to have you on to talk about this. And to uh, talk about you know what you've what you've been doing with uh, with methods. So why don't we always start with a drink check and a risk check? So why don't we dive right into it? Excellent. Yeah. Um, in my glass, uh, I've got a classic Manhattan. Um, drinking obviously the method vermouth, um, but another uh, local whiskey, another product uh, here, Ragtime Rye, which is a high rye. Um, whiskey bottled in bond. Um, Alan Katz uh, was one of the founders. He's a longtime uh, figure in the bar world here in New York. Um, and when the laws in New York for craft distilling changed, he was really one of the front runners there um, and started uh, distilling. I think they're what, 10 years in now. Um, and yeah, really great um, high rye. Um, I think they're at 77% the mash bill. Um, and just pairs really well with all the flavors in the, uh, uh, vermouth. So that obviously Ango, uh, Angostura bitters, classic, um, and, uh, twist expressed and discarded over the top. Oh, fancy. <laughs> I like, it. I try. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we covered this briefly, uh, before, but what's on, what's on wrist? <laughs> Um, so I, I am not a watch guy. Um, I've spent the last decade in change with my hands in water, uh, bartending <laughs> at a bunch of places and doing production stuff. So uh, wrist wear has not been something that I've gotten into. But uh, um, listening to some of your um, episodes and in, in, uh, getting ready for this, I was I was intrigued by a lot of it because a lot of the I'm always a fan of running down rabbit holes of whatever people are passionate about and it's very clear that you can do that with watches as well. Yes, <laughs> you, you guys. <laughs> very easily can. Um, so no, that, I will say I wanted to highlight that because I think you're our first guest who wasn't actively wearing something. Um, so yeah. I just want to make sure that we got that on, <laughs> got that on the record, you know, a hundred and four episodes in and it finally yeah. happened. Um, <laughs> there we go. No, I'm, I'm excited. So, so Buzzy, Buzzy, you've got a fancy glass there. What have, uh, what have you got in that fancy glass? I do, I do have a fancy glass and I, I would actually just point out that the fact that you don't have any watch on, it shows the esteem in which we hold you because <laughs> we, we wouldn't let anyone wristless, you know, wristwatch less into this podcast, but you're, you're, you're good. You're allowed. Okay. So, um, in my glass, well, in the glass before this, I was drinking, uh, method vermouth just as is, as a little aperitif, I think. Right. Yeah. Sure. And, um, it, it is delightful. We'll talk about that pretty much the whole episode. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I, I made a Manhattan uh, tonight, and I found that uh, a two-to-one of uh, Buffalo Trace and, and Method, uh, I went with 
like real light, a dash of uh, Fee Brother Cherry Bitters. Shook it up. Two Luxardo Cherries. Uh, it's, it is delicious and nutritious. I, I also um, stayed away from the rye because I knew that uh, Spence was going to... Uh, oh. <laughs> Spence is going to have that on his drink check. Okay. Yeah. Um, on my wrist... My Tudor Black Bay 58. Uh, I put it back on the rivet bracelet. It's great. It works. It's a delight. On my other wrist, because we needed to have three watches for the three people on this <laughs> podcast, <laughs> is the uh, Oris Diver 65 that's uh, in uh, from our friends at Oris. So this, this one is uh, got the turquoise loom plots. And a gray gradient dial. Yeah, it's on a black leather strap. Uh, it it is great. And I like the fact that um, I'm Schwarzkopfing with two vintage inspired pieces here. Um, I think a lot about you know essentially the the diver sixty five and the Black Bay fifty eight being very similar in that they're they're vintage inspired pieces but but built you know modern uh build quality and tolerances and everything um having both of them on hand the past couple of days i really think that you could have both of those in your collection and not feel like you're doubling up on on vintage stuff unnecessarily the the diver 65 definitely is more light and um i don't know it's just it's just a little bit a little bit more lithe and obviously has way more uh, dial variations so i really think that if you if you find one of those that you particularly like and you already have you know another you know, vintage inspired piece. I feel like I could have both of these in my collection and I'm not double dipping actually, cause they are different enough. So it was just kind of, kind of interesting because I had to have both of them on hand to really, um, really get that, that takeaway. I, I kind of thought that eh, maybe, maybe they are too similar, but they're, they're really not. They're both great. So all right. All right. Spence. I will bring it home. And you know, um, like Buzzy said, in the glass, I'm also drinking. I think we're three for three on Manhattans. Uh, <laughs> but I am I'm like Corey and I have a rye Manhattan. I went and I'm getting pretty close to the end of my bottle of Maysville Club rye, which uh, is a bottle I hold in very high esteem. So uh, either Chancellor or John, if you're listening, I'll probably be uh, shooting you guys a message because I need to restock. Um, but you know, that, that high proof rye with such an excellent flavor profile, just uh, I, right before we were re- pressed record, I, I took my first sip of this um, with obviously method vermouth, a little bit of Angostura, but I like Ango. That's a, I might start using that, Corey. That's a good, and then one, one Luxardo cherry, cause I'm not as fancy as Buzz. Um, and it's just, that might be the best Manhattan I've ever made. Um, and I tend to make mine by sight. It is the right color as I know it. And just everything, 
everything pairs so well together. The the sweet vermouth and the and the like the spiciness of the Maysville Club is just yeah, it's just we'll get into a little bit more why that works so well, but this this might be this might be my favorite drink that I've that I've made in a very long time. Uh, it doesn't help that I we'll talk about this a little bit later, but I also tried a Rob Roy earlier today with some uh, Founders Reserve from Glen Levet. I did a, a regular Manhattan with some bourbon. Um, I haven't tried a Boulevardier yet, Buzzy. I don't know if you have. Um, no. We're out of Campari, so um, <laughs> kind of important. I actually, I actually still have a little uh, Campari, and I thought about mixing one for tonight, but I also okay. So the Boulevardiers that I make. I do like a half portion of the Campari. I, I really try to, it's such a strong flavor. I don't want it to um, way out compete the other ingredients. And even when you go really light on it, I feel like the vermouth disappears a little bit out of that drink. Uh, so I will certainly make some in the future, but I figured for tonight that I wanted a Manhattan. I mean, that's, that's the one, that's the drink where it's super obvious, right? If you cheaped out and you have, you know, some crummy, you know, martini and Rossi, um, you know, that's, that's been sitting out opened mm-hmm. for eight months at room temperature, right? Versus, you know, something that's actually good. Um, so yeah, Boulevardiers, not yet, but I will. All right. We'll have, to, we'll have to talk about that drink and, and some other good drink recommendations. I'm sure Corey's got quite a few, but I yeah, will for sure. finish off the wrist check. And I am actually not wearing one of my own watches. I wore multi, I'm on my third watch of the day. I uh, wore the brew retromatic earlier. I had the Seiko Alpinist, uh, the mountain glacier on, but we've got in a Norcane Neverest uh, GMT on loan. Uh, thanks to our friend uh, at Catlin watches life. who I'm sure most of our, if not all of our listeners are, uh, are familiar with from the 10 and two podcast. Um, she was kind of to send us the, uh, their uh, black and blue version of their GMT. And I got to say, I'm quite impressed uh, with, with this piece. Um, the dial that has kind of a, a, a carbon fiber weave look to it is way more subtle in person than it is in the renderings, which is nice. Uh, Buzzy, you've seen this, the bezel action is fantastic. And the coin edge or the, the knurling on the bezel is actually really quite, pronounced, uh, which makes it very easy to grasp, which everybody loves a good bezel. Um, and, uh, I will say it is, it is a little bit thicker, but so is the uh, other watch that it shares a movement with the Tudor black Bay GMT. So this is a a hair under 15 millimeters, or as I like to say, uh, roughly the same thickness as the new Tudor Pelagos FXD with a NATO strap. So, uh, <laughs> little, little, little shots fired there for some people who complain about thick watches and then yeah. wear watches under or over two layers of fabric, um, on their wrist. So anyway, um, Steve, I'm just messing with you, <laughs> but, uh, not that he's going to listen, but, uh, no, I'm, I'm, I've been really impressed. There, there's a couple design features, uh, that I don't, I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of, uh, but I think they work here. The only thing that I will complain about, uh, the micro adjust requires a spring bar tool and I get not wanting to have the holes in the clasp, but it's been the first time in a while that I stabbed myself with a spring bar tool and it was because of this clasp. So that is just something to, uh, to be aware of. That is the only thing that I really have any complaints about. The ceramic bezel really pops. The hands are nice and polished. Um, Oh, I think it's a, it's a really, it's a really solid package. So, uh, 
I'm sure we'll get into that more at some point. Maybe we'll have Catlin on to talk about this at some point too. Yeah, that would be that would be excellent. Um, I, I got to take a look at at that when I dropped off the method of vermouth. First thing that jumps out at you, know, I when I start uh, to look at a watch, I, I like to fiddle with the fiddly parts of it, and yeah, bezel action rolls. Uh, the knurling is great. The knurling definitely makes it look thicker, right? Um, it when you look at it from the side, that there's a lot of visual height, but it's also super functional. The handset's really, really nice. Uh, that that was an impressive, and uh, that that dial it is that's something that it, it's a bummer that you can't really render that well. Mm-hmm. Like to to appreciate, it, you have to to see it in person. Um, yeah. And I, I definitely did see uh, uh, Spence like give himself a stigmata uh, from that spring bar tool. So, yeah, yeah, that is a, a head scratcher doing the micro adjust that way. But oh well. Minor. Sometimes you have to suffer for style, right? Have a yes. sleek, no, no holes look mm-hmm. because the holes are in your your hand from an errant spring. They bar. are now. <laughs> they are now. <laughs> yeah. So. Anyway. Well, now that we've got the uh, the introductions and the pleasantries out of the way, Corey, um, why don't you give us a little bit about the background that you have? You know, you mentioned working in bars and restaurants for quite some time. You may have actually met our buddy Sandy at some point uh, at a sure. at an event, um, and yeah. then how you got the idea to start a spirits company and, and start with uh, with vermouth of all things, because I think all of us are now starting to realize the more and more we enjoy cocktails that. It's a very important, very important ingredient yeah. uh, to making the cocktail taste as good as it should. Yeah. Um, my background, I spent, um, so my full background, I, was, I got to New York um, for architecture. Um, and uh, back in 2008, when um, the uh, last cataclysmic um, event in our economy, or one of the first in my professional career, um, I realized I wasn't uh, in it for architecture and wasn't going to sacrifice for that. And I missed working in restaurants and bars, which was what, the way I paid my way through um, school. And um, I kind of grew up in restaurants and bars. My my mom owned a deli growing up. And, and so hospitality was always what made me comfortable and, and where I found um, a lot of just um, kind of my people and what I was looking to do and invest in. So, um, I went straight back into hospitality and spent, um, a little over a decade bartending, um, and working in restaurants all throughout Manhattan, everything from dive music venues to Michelin starred restaurants. Um, and my last stop was at, uh, for the relaunch of Union Square Cafe. Um, if you've been to New York, Union Square Cafe is one of the iconic restaurants in the city. Uh, it's the first restaurant that Danny Meyer um, in Union Square Hospitality Group opened here in the city. Um, and so when it, it moved locations after being open for 30 years, um, and it, it was known for connecting with the green markets and really championing uh, local. Um, so what we kind of now say as farm to table before that was even a term, Danny was doing that um, at Union Square Cafe in its first location. And so, but the bar was kind of one of those international bars that you would see anywhere, um, collection of spirits, kind of the best in category from anywhere. 
And what I said I wanted to do with the bar program was make everything as local as possible and, and meet the ethos of where the kitchen had really made its name. Um, and so when we started um, with our beer list was all Northeast and local breweries. And there are some incredible breweries here in New York um, distilleries um, that we were working with that were uh, making incredible uh, whiskeys and gin and, and pretty much everything that you could find, you could find a local version of. And, and then we said, anything that we can't find, we'll make in house. And um, the style of, vermouth that you use for classic cocktails is a Torino style vermouth and nobody was making that here locally in New York. Um, Torino vermouth, if you think about um, Carpano Antica yeah. or Cokie Torino, like those are the kind of set the standards of what people think. And those are the ubiquitous uh, vermouths in cocktail bars and higher programs. Um, and so we thought, all right, somebody's got to be making something similar, right? Something that we can mess with doctor maybe we can see if we can make our own um, and then we quickly realize there's a reason that these recipes are so closely held family secrets that are passed down for hundreds of years and they don't tell you anything that are in them and and um and realized all right so while running a high level bar program in manhattan i don't know that we can craft that code um and so after looking at kind of what our options were um, we tried making some in-house and quickly realized, all right, we're never going to hit that mark. We made a really cool esoteric Blanc vermouth, um, which doesn't fit stylistically into any of those categories. And the, our clientele are not the type of clientele that would have been cool saying, hey, no, 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 it's a cool riff on a Manhattan. It would, uh, you'd quickly hear about it. And, and <laughs> so if you're ordering a Manhattan or a Negroni, you expect your Manhattan to taste like a Manhattan and your Negroni tastes like a Negroni, not a, like a hipster version of um, whatever you're working on. Um, so three plus years ago, I left to see if we could make one doing uh, using all New York wine and brandy. Um, we knew the botanicals would be international um, right. just because I'm, I've never tasted citrus in New York and I don't know that I would want to. Fair. And the other piece was we wanted to make it a, a workhorse vermouth. Um, something that was priced accordingly and same thing if, if you're going to try to make Seville oranges in um, New York, they're going to be pretty expensive. Um, but we searched throughout all of New York, uh, upstate, um, Long Island and the North Fork and everything, just trying to figure out our wine production. Uh, I'm a bartender by trade. I've never done anything nearly to this scale. Uh, we were sous um botanicals in jars in the basement of the restaurant. I was like, that's that's definitely not going to be the way that we can scale this thing unless somebody's got an Olympic sized pool that we can heat at specific temperatures or something like that. That's not that's not happening. So um connected to Cornell and they pointed us in the direction of some producers in the Finger Lakes region who were making hybrid varietals, which are domestic and um European varietal wines. Um uh, in the Finger Lakes, and those are more environmentally and economically sustainable for the growers. Connected and started talking to them. We met um, the uh, team at Swedish Hill. Uh, they'd never made vermouth before. Um, so we taught them how to make vermouth, and they taught us how to make it in larger than three liter batches and slow cookers in our apartment. Um, and went from there and connected with um, Finger Lakes Distilling. Um, I'm not sure if you guys have added any of their stuff. They make the McKenzie whiskeys uh, here in New York. 
Um, they're fantastic stuff. Um, I would be drinking that if I hadn't killed the bottle, but uh, they make it. They're they're one of the top uh, distillers in my opinion here. So I've not seen it, but now I've got something to look for. Yeah, you got to look for <laughs> that's right. Stuff. Like um, Finger Lake Distilling, um, they do incredible stuff. Almost like um, they're very grain focused. A lot of the New York um, whiskeys are very grain focused, um, but Finger Lake kind of catches it almost like um, grain O to V that's aged as opposed to something that has a lot of barrel influence, um, which I love both, but it's very cool to, to see what they're doing and see kind of the heritage grain and all, all New York grain and see what character that, that provides. And so we hooked up with them and they also make brandies. So we use that for fortifying our vermouth. Um, and that was a three year process, um, of blind tasting everything from individual botanical tinctures to the wines to recipes um and then um had our sommelier and bar friends um taste in comparison to industry standards um all always double blind so we didn't bias the um samples um, and we started winning more than we lost and then we started winning almost all of them um and then realized all right we're ready to move. Um, and uh, since this was all bootstrapped, we decided to do a Kickstarter in February of 2020. Um, and then obviously everything went off the rails at that point. Um, uh, we got fully funded, half, uh, luckily though, um, and just pushed back us into November of 2020 to get into sales um, and with just the sweet vermouth. Um, working on a dry vermouth um, to come out uh, hopefully by the end of the summer, and that'll be another kind of stylistic um, benchmark in, in a French chambray style dry vermouth. So, um, but the sweet vermouth's been our workhorse, and um, we're already in about uh, 260 accounts here in New York and up oh. through the Finger Lakes. And, and um, yeah, so quickly being adopted throughout New York as kind of a, uh, a local option um, for sweet vermouth. That's excellent. Yeah, congrats on, on that. Um, Thank you. Okay, so a cu- couple of questions po- have popped up so far. Um, number one, not vermouth related. Uh, got three domers here on on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, uh, I know that we've got domers in the audience uh, too. What dorm were you from? Ooh, Siegfried. Siegfried. Okay. I should say Bond Hall because I spent more time in Bond Hall than uh, the, the only co-ed dorm on campus. But uh. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, you and I were. If you were there quite a bit, then you and I were neighbors because I was in Morrissey. Okay, so you were in the fishbowl. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Friday nights, you'd look in and be like, "I can't believe they're still in there." Yeah, yeah. that was us. <laughs> oh yeah, my my my, uh, my roommate uh, junior year was, was an archie, and it was definitely like having a single. Um, yeah, uh, cinder block palace of love here, Stanford Hall. Yeah, um, oh, there you go. But uh, but yeah, okay, good deal. <laughs> um, I actually know my roommate senior year then if you were in Siegfried. But <laughs> all right, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that off air. But it, it is funny. I will, I will throw my, not under the bus, but my wife went to, she also went to Notre Dame, but she wasn't an archie, but she did go to architecture camp at Notre Dame when she was in high school. So just going to throw that out there. So she, she left the career far uh, smarter <laughs> and earlier <laughs> than, than, than I did. <laughs> it's well, it's so funny. Like that, that seems like it's a career with 
an awful lot of of divergent paths, right? Because when I yeah. when I uh, keep in touch uh, with, with my old roommate, I'll just get like the funniest updates from him, right? Yeah. Um, he he would have been two. No, he he would have been several years behind you, um, and so you know it was in the. The meltdown had already occurred. Things were were yeah. uh, rough, right, uh, uh, in the, the 20 teens at that point. But every now and then, he'd be like, oh, I'm over designing Baroque office buildings for Swiss bankers for a couple of months. And it's yeah, it's kind of fun, even though I, I think that they're garish. They, it makes them happy, and they pay me, yeah. so... <laughs> the last project I was working on um, was a massive, massive project in Orlando, Florida, uh, where the uh, precedent that the developer wanted to see, he had pulled from photos of the Palazzo um, Casino in Vegas <laughs> and wanted us to stitch pieces of that together because to him that was classical architecture. And since Notre Dame's got a classical focus, <laughs> I was handed the project and said, you're now lead design on the exteriors. I was like, this is, this is horrifying. And so when that, that's the project that folded up and, um, uh, in 2008. And I was like, I will, I have done. I was like, I realized I was like, one, I'm sitting on the wrong side of the table. If I actually want to impact, uh, design and stuff. And, and yeah, that's a whole other conversation. Um, but yeah, architecture does have a lot of, it, it's, I've loved the education. Um, yeah, I mean, it's given me so much like kind of view of micro and macro and how you have to keep those in balance. I did, I did all, all the branding and design. So the label I designed myself um, for the vermouth um, and all that's a lot from just like the arts background. But um, no, I think it, it, it was a great education and I'm just glad that I got out of it early. <laughs> yeah. two, years, two years post-grad in it and realized, all right, this is, um, it's definitely a career for people who are specifically passionate about certain aspects. Um, and for my friends who have stayed in it, it's incredibly gratifying. Um, but I was looking for something else. Yeah. Sitting there, um, uh, being told to I was reproduce. It, it drove you, me to drink. That's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, the, the stuff that I picked up by osmosis, I, I, I do feel like, uh, I'm, I'm better for like, that the those little cubbies on the outside of buildings that typically have statues being called edicules. I feel very yeah. Very <laughs> Something that comes up daily in your your normal career, your normal path of life, right? Like that's. But when you are walking past something, you're like, yeah. "What a beautiful looking edicule!" Yeah, everyone's exactly. like, "Whoa, wow, he's so classical." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jeopardy final questions every once in a while. You know something that nobody else does in the room, and you're like, "Oh yeah." I'm, I'm that's an right. astute observer of, of yeah. That's right. The primordial hut. Yeah. That that's the <laughs> yeah. that's the other one. We're gonna start talking about the Etruscans and then yeah. Yep. <laughs> We're going off the rails a little bit. <laughs> you did not expect this to be this weird. Yeah, hey, no, no. We like, this hey, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I can go there. <laughs> we don't we don't like it. columns that are entrained in walls. That's yeah, <laughs> columns are load bearing. They're yeah. not to partake. Yep. Yeah, 
Uh, I think I've narrowed down who your roommate, if I do know him, could possibly be <laughs> from from these conversations. Awesome. <laughs> oh, that'll be enough. Yeah. He's the man. He's a good, good dude. <laughs> Lord. Okay. Anyway. Chugga, 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 derail. Yeah. All right. Good job, Buzzy. Uh, okay, let's go back to the booze. Um, yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, so the Torino-style vermouth. Is, is there yeah. something that is uniquely difficult uh, about the Torino style? Because, like, for example, um, my favorite cocktail bar, and I, I think that it uh, closed down uh, during the COVID, uh, but Velvet Tango Room in Cleveland uh, made their own vermouth. And mm. um, it was another delight. A great yeah, it's not like you see uh, cocktail bars make their own vermouth that often, but it, it I know that it has been done. So is there something that is uniquely challenging about the Torino style? or I would say that um, so Torino vermouths are one of the original styles of vermouth. Um, vermouth comes from a long tradition of bittering like secondary and tertiary wines that are kind of cast off. Um, for medicinal purposes and using wormwood to bitter them. Um, and that was a uh, German tradition. Um, I mean, it goes even further back into some Chinese traditions and things, but it was a um, uh, German tradition to bitter with wormwood. Um, the Italians and kind of as every cultural influence was spreading throughout Europe, adopted that. Um, and um, the Carpano house, um, Aleppo Carpano, um, started making this bittered uh, wine in Piedmonte in Torino. Um, and that became um, so popular, he had to stay open 24 hours a day just to stay, keep up with demand and cranking it out the front door. Whoa. Um, and then the French saw that and started messing with their own stuff. And they started referring to this as vermouth, which is the French mispronunciation of the German word for wormwood. Um, so <laughs> vermouth is a popular Italian uh, aperitif uh, named by the French mispronouncing a German word. So you can't get more pan-European than that. No. Um, and, uh, but, but the style um, was using white wine from Piedmonte, um, bittering with wormwood and a number of other botanicals, um, and then uh, adding caramel to it, um, which is where the color comes from. It's not actually red wine or anything like that. It's white wine that's been caramel added to it. Learn something uh, just now. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> um, and, and so that became what was emulated or departed from. And then the French took theirs and said, all right, let's drop the caramel. Let's make our own thing. And that's where the dry vermouth came from. Um, and then regionally, you'd have botanicals that were available to them. But then also to kind of show off wealth, you'd show what you could import. Uh, so oftentimes different. Um, citrus and things like that. Um, so Torino is more that that was what vermouth was based on. And then when you get into the cocktail um, development here in the States where you have immigrant populations from all over the world mixing, that's really where cocktails come from is where you see different um, drinking traditions collide. Um, the Torino vermouths were what the classic cocktails would have been designed around. Okay. Um, and so that's that's really more the difficulty is making something that's familiar. Um, yeah. The structure of a Manhattan, the structure of 
um, all these classics are around uh, Torino style, and which means a little bit fuller bodied, richer, um, long, bitter finish, um, savory and citrus notes in balance. Um, and so getting into that kind of pocket is what's, what's the hard part. Um, I could have made something super esoteric and thrown mushrooms or something in it and said, Hey, here's a new vermouth. You should try it. It's delicious. And I, because I told you it is that it's, it's right. Um, but that, that would have, that's a, that's a, a month or two project, the two and a half years was trying to get something that was stylistically in the pocket of what Torino is. So when other bars are doing it, then, so our clientele was really what drove that. Like a Union Square Cafe, like I said, a Manhattan has to taste like a Manhattan. So if we're making something that fits in that style, um, that's harder to do. Making something that people are familiar with is harder to do. But if I made a small cocktail bar, yeah, I could engineer a vermouth that's more versatile, that goes to whatever um side that i want it to be you see people one of my uh punta mace which is another aperitif vermouth um it's a little it's it literally means one and a half one point like a, a point and a half of bitterness so it's a higher bitter um quality and it's a little bit on the richer like it's balanced it's delicious um and a lot of cocktail bars will use that or that'll be their shtick but that's not doesn't fit into a traditional thing so if you're making the traditional cocktails in a um, classic form, you want it to stylistically be the same. Huh. Uh, I, mean, I guess that makes a lot of sense because kind of the goal is, is well known that it, it takes a lot of work to, to reach that goal. I'm just amazed mm-hmm. that, that, that there was a cultural exchange between the Germans and the Italians. Like, yeah, I thought the only one that ever happened there was the battle of the Teutoburg forest. You know, <laughs> Quintilis Ferris, yeah. give me back my legions. Um, th- this is, I mean, you're talking about Italy before Italy was Italy. Right. Um, you're talking about Northwest, um, in Piedmonte and, and, um, so it's, we put these kind of what our designations are now, but you had, I mean, you're talking about, uh, Northern Italy for a long time is more influenced by Austrian and other influences than, than it was by Rome and especially Southern Italy. Yeah. Yes, and Arminius was not influenced enough by all of the splendor that Rome heaped on him and decided to take out a couple of legions in the forest and uh, during Emperor Augustus really, really pissed him off. Good times. <laughs> they should have just drank more from it. They should have. A problem yeah. solved. Yeah. Problem yeah. solved. <laughs> all right. Cool. Yeah, that's 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 a really... It's really interesting um, to understand that whole that whole history there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so you know what? Um, okay, you, you'd mentioned that you have a a, a driver muth coming up. Um, so what what has that? Um, like uh, product development been like, do you, do you feel like you've gotten up the curve a little faster because based on like prior learnings or is this like a different? Oh, sure. Piece? So, um, I mean, it's, I would say the driver move is harder than sweet just in the same way that um, if you think about it, like beer, uh, making a really good Pilsner is really difficult, but making a, yeah. double IPA. You can hide a lot behind the hops and the high alcohol content. Um, sweet vermouth has a, and for 
those intents and purposes, more hops and alcohol, like it's, you've got the sugar, you've got everything else that's going on, you're hitting it, you're hammering it with botanicals. Um, the French style of vermouth is a lot more delicate. Um, and so the wine is far more important um, to the character of the vermouth. Um, our, the wine that we use um, for the sweet uh, is of a quality that we're incredibly happy with. I mean, beyond happy with. Um, we use Cayuga White, which is a, um, a hybrid varietal that's the one more prolific up in the Finger Lakes region. Um, and then Valvin Muscat, which is a descendant also of the Muscat family. So Moscato yeah. would have been the base in um, Torino um, originally. And so there's some connection there. Um, but when you're talking about um, the wines that you're going to use for uh, uh, Chambray style dry, you're looking for something that's a little bit cleaner um, and more citrus forward, um, something that can stand on its own, whereas maybe these others have more air, like the ones I was just describing, there might be a little bit more aromatic um, and and have some perfume and floral qualities that might not make a good table wine or something. Um, but the, for a, for a driver move, that, that has to, it's, it's lightly and delicately um, uh, aromatized. So... Um, that's a little bit, it's a, it's a more deft hand to produce that. But the, the, the process has been the same. Um, we spent a long time just tasting each botanical individually um, in different macerations um, and just learning. It's kind of like building the crayon box before you start uh, coloring. Like, um, like we spent a lot of time figuring out um, different proof um, and uh, different time intervals to taste each of the botanicals and then trying to find a, a happy median um, so that the production wasn't individual tinctures. Um, so that we feel pretty confident on. We know we know the botanicals. And I mean, I'm saying it's, we're well into the development of the driver move. So at this point, it's, it's the same process, just knowing that you're walking a little bit more of a fine line. So... Okay, I imagine that you had, uh, in my business, uh, medical devices, we have engineering builds, engineering pilots, and then eventually production, right? So different, different scales, different, um, mm -hmm. different purposes. Uh, I, I imagine that you probably run smaller batches first before you, you really scale yeah. up, um, did you find, I mean, how well do things scale? Like, was, did you have any learning experiences going um, kind of from the, those smaller taster batches to, to larger? Or? Um, so, yeah, uh, more just confirming that being obsessive about details is important. <laughs> um, on small scale, um, just really making sure that you're it's it's kind of like home brewing um if you sanitize all your equipment properly and you do everything right those that, those recipes will scale on the bigger brewing equipment um but if you've got a lot of variability and you're not measuring everything appropriately then you're going to see a lot of um, influx and change um we were excited 
when we did our first, so our first batch was a little over, a little shy of 500 cases. Second batch was a little over 800 and we just did 1200 cases about uh, two weeks ago. So um, each batch is growing um, and each time we've hit similar um, quality control points um, in tasting the scale. So we haven't seen any impact um, yet. And when we made our first leap from literally three liter batches in slow cookers, um, that we had kind of rigged up to try to be as sealed as possible and control evaporation of alcohol and stuff like that. Um, we got the exact same product off of our 477 cases on our first run, which we were, we knew we, we were going to be accepting of a certain tolerance to either side. And when we kind of hit bullseye in the center, we were like, all right, this is, um, all of the obsessive, um, aspects of of measuring everything to its uh, smallest possible degree and and make obsessive notes on things has really helped in in getting us there so um we were afraid of that and the other thing is botanicals change it's agricultural product the wines change you have to be able to Mm -hmm. kind of adapt to that and taste and and part of the my background as being a bartender um is you take when you're bartending at a high level you take that into account um, so things change, environments change, the, the ice changes, the, uh, different bar to bar, the, um, certain, you, you have to be able to adapt in real time, um, in making cocktails and making sure that you're hitting your points when you're tasting drinks. Um, but then at the same time, getting familiar with flavors and being able to engineer drinks that hit kind of like, it's kind of like painting or something else. Like if you get familiar with the medium, then you know that you can adjust accordingly to get something that's balanced. So you, you were mentioning talking about making your initial batches and in slow cookers that you've rigged up to mm-hmm. kind of going to, to, to massive production scale. For me, I just, I'm just kind of curious as to like, how do you go about actually making a vermouth? I'm that new to the product as far as yeah. how it's manufactured, just high level, like fortified wine. You're talking about mixing the botanicals. Like what does the process look like? If I were to go on a tour sure. and see how you do it, what would you be showing me? Well, if you went to on a tour, you'd be going to a storage facility at Manhattan mini storage here in Manhattan. So <laughs> about a four by four room. That's, that's really our facility right now. So um, all of our production is done up at uh, Finger Lakes um, at Swedish Hill, uh, third generation winery up there. Um, a, a vermouth is fortified aromatized wine. So fortified means that you've added alcohol. Um, aromatized means that you've macerated botanicals. Um, there, um, and then how and what organ, uh, what processes you go through and what gets macerated and in what is kind of some of the, the art and the science of it. Um, we take a uh, high proof brandy and macerate botanicals in it. So basically steep it like a tea. Yeah. Um, and we do that for, um, a, a long cold maceration. So basically not heated. Um, and so that pulls out a certain number of characteristics from the botanicals. Um, we mix that in with the wine that's been sweetened to a certain level that we're looking for. Um, and then we cook all of that. Um, and when I say cook, it's not like up to a boil or anything else like that. You, you're not trying to redistill anything. Uh, you're just trying to get it to a point where you start pulling other characters out of the botanicals um, to get kind of into the geeky weeds part of it. Um, certain ca- things in each of these botanicals will come out in alcohol 
differently than they will in water. Um, so the balance of those things um, and the length of time that they're exposed to each of those produces different characteristics. So you can make, I could take cinnamon, for instance, macerate it just in spirit, um, and then remove the cinnamon, cut it down, and then give it to you, and it would have one flavor. But if I boiled it in water and then added spirit to that after I had moved the cinnamon, you'd have a totally different product, even though you've had it in solution for the same amount of time and um, it's at the same proof and whatever, the process, the order of operations matters. Um, and so that's what we do. It goes into the spirit, macerates for a amount of time. All of it goes into the wine with the sugar that cooks, and then we strain everything off. Um, and then we do some final tweaks with some of the botanicals at the end um, and uh, let it rest, which is another important piece of the puzzle is kind of the same way with in a shorter amount of time, but similarly to like when you talk, talk about whiskeys and things maturing, even when you're talking about in stainless or in bottles, like there are some things at a, at a young age that chemical processes are still trying to find their equilibrium. Um, and then it settles into a um, state that we're ready to sell it. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's, that's super interesting that, that those botanicals extract differently with, with the, in that heavy alcohol brandy versus the yeah the more water with the, the wine yeah. yeah it's like the the terminology and the science it, certain things are hydrophobic and certain things are hydrophilic yes. um and um just the way the chemical bonds and things are, are just different in different solutions so it's exposing it to those um um in the right order and the right amount of time very That's cool fascinating <laughs> so um yeah wow geez plus now now i i feel like i uh i've kind of done some uh incredibly baby level uh vermouth making because we uh we rigged up uh, some mold wine in a crock pot one one year uh for there our halloween party know, that's it. And, uh, <laughs> yeah i think that was when we were in four east west yeah yeah uh, good good times Good times. <laughs> so, um, okay. So, so we've got uh, dry vermouth. Um, do you have any other products in the pipeline? Um, I'd love to do some Amaro's um, and get into that space. I've loved, I, I think that um, as the American palate is getting used to bitter things, which I think the beer world was, the forerunner of all of that for us. Um, but seeing that change and seeing what you can do with some of uh, more uh, bitter drinks, I think those are, that's, that's where, where I'm interested in and got a lot of, and that's where I can be a little bit more whimsical and playful and things that I like to drink and highlight botanicals that are kind of off the beaten path and stuff that I've found um, that I'm really into. Um, so uh, we'll start looking at that and then, um, this all started as providing local options for bartenders and bartenders, more tools to do what they do, which I've been, I was doing for over a decade. So it's more focused on that. What, what do bartenders need? Um, I love, like you were talking about, um, Campari earlier and, uh, stuff like that. I, I love Campari and we have a local version. Actually, if you look right above my shoulder, there's a, um, <laughs> Uh, red bitters that's made locally here from Fort Have, which is, in my opinion, one of the few that's actually out Campari to Campari, 
like Campari is kind of like Heinz ketchup of red bitters. Um, if you can't make ketchup better than Heinz ketchup, you don't need to be making ketchup. Um, but they've actually improved, I think, on that category. Um, but um, so I don't need to make another red bitters, but in that same vein of making stuff that bartenders are looking for that are local and, and possibly elevated, that's kind of, that's what our jam is. So um, Forte, you said red bitters? Forte, yeah. Cool. Forte. Mm-hmm. They're a local Brooklyn uh, producer. They're more um, uh, nationally available, uh, but their stuff is incredible. They do in Amaro as well. Um, um, they've been at this a little bit longer than I have um, and take a, um, they're, they're very focused on um, the individual botanicals um, and expressing them. Um, they're, uh, yeah, they're, they're great guys, but the, their product is uh, exceptional. Nice. So, okay, uh, I feel like many of our listeners, they drink Manhattans. They may have even been goaded into drinking the Boulevardier or two, uh, thanks mm-hmm. to, to me. What other things should be on our radar? What other well, delightful drinks I, could you Buzzy, make? we'd be remiss <laughs> if we're talking about Watchners if we didn't mention the Negroni. Because well, yeah. that, in Watchnerdom culture, has a very, very esteemed place Um in 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 the whisk culture, it, it's a it's a weird like. How so? What, what, what's the connection? So, I, so the, I believe one of the four uh, the foremost like ambassadors for the Negroni is a gentleman by the name of Matt Hranick, who also wrote A Man and His Watch. Um, okay. You know, affiliated with like, just so he's he's an author. He's he's a big fan of the Negroni. He you know people have said that if you don't make the Negroni the right way, he'll come out and tell you how to make. Like he's he's like he's the Negroni sure. fairy godmother, as it were. So. It, I, and if you read enough watch media, he gets mentioned because of the, the book, you know, he's, he's been on, yeah. I think he's been on Hodinkee radio a couple of times, but on a talking watch is Hodinkee is like the nay plus ultra blog that all of us watch nerds read um, okay. to the point that it's actually kind of become a lifestyle brand as it were. Uh, we kind of lament that development, but we'll, that's a, a weird <laughs> aside, um, but good for them. But yes, the Negroni is very popular among watch nerds. So I feel like we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that. Buzzy is doing his best to be the Matt Hrannick of the Boulevardier, as it were. Um, but that's right. A great summer cocktail. I've been, I, I, I was goaded into that about a year and a half ago, and I've really enjoyed my my, my trip down the boulevard, if, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> as a, as a, a good friend of mine and, and fellow domer, uh, by Joey P points out, she explains it as bitter and refreshing. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I, I'm a fan of, I mean, I'm, I, I pretty much drink anything that's anybody. When I was a bartender, people would ask, what's my favorite drink? And I'd always, my can line was the one that I'm making, um, or the one that I'm drinking now that I'm not a bartender. Um, but, um, yeah, no, I, I, Negroni is incredible. I think that's one of the ones where it's a little bit of a challenging drink um, from people's expectations or what they're familiar with, but it's intriguing enough. Like the thing about bitter and what bitter does to you when you're drinking it. And I think what's intriguing about it is um, we have a physical response to bitter. That's unlike a lot of other things it releases, um, things in nature that are bitter tend to be poisons. Um, So you get a little hit of adrenaline. You get a little hit of all these things that stimulates you in a way that's unlike um, other flavors. 
Um, so I think bitter is just intriguing from that standpoint. So when you give somebody something that's bracingly bitter, laced around with all these like citrus notes that are familiar and refreshing and comforting, um, it's one of those that like if somebody gets into um, a Negroni or starts to break through that and goes from one to two and maybe samples a third, you're like, all right, I've got you hooked. Like I can play with this. Um, that person is willing to to dig, lean into something that might not be as comfortable right off the bat. And so, um, yeah, Boulevardier, again, um, same situation when you're talking about Campari um, and Gentian is one of their bittering agents um, that can be um, a little bit grassier and more bracing, but it's incredibly refreshing and, and it's definitely, definitely the my summer go-to. Yeah. And it's interesting it, that you mentioned the the comfort about a Negroni because the first time my wife and I tried a Negroni or tried to make them ourselves, we didn't really know what we were doing. Sure. And if you make a bad one, it is, it is not enjoyable experience. Uh, but I when mean, you, that's gin. Yeah, yes, like, bad, is. bad gin is horrible. Yes. And, um, <laughs> and great gin is exceptional. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things that people, um, I remember, um, I mean, you're throwing me way back into college days again. Um, I had a bad night with a, a, a handle of McCormick's gin uh, in six grade one on, yeah. on my birthday. My <laughs> doormate decided that that was the gift that was going to keep on giving. Um, and it did for a solidly 48 hour period after that. Um, but um, no, the uh, um, gin, one of the things when I started bartending over uh, 10 years ago that uh, uh, one of my friends who was at that point um, training me, um, he told me that like 90% of our job is convincing people that they like gin. Because um, <laughs> that was a time when bartenders loved gin because gin is, is for all intents and purposes, the best flavored vodka you could possibly conceive of. Right. Um, <laughs> and it's citrusy and balanced and has nuance and, and complexity and um so that but but bad gin is everybody's had their their bout with something that tastes like pine salt um yeah. that just wrecks everything um sure did uh, yeah <laughs> so, so that's that's one of those like wading into that and then giving somebody if you've had that that experience the same i say the same thing with tequila like we're now in this boom of, i mean we're in a boom of gin right now as well but a boom of tequila Mm -hmm. um, and mezcal and all these things, but people had their bad bouts with, um, uh, Jose Cuervo or whatever else, you know, like these are not high quality spirits, uh, but there are some similar characteristics that immediately alert you that you're about to make a bad decision. Um, and when you get past that and you realize, oh no, these are craft spirits that have a lot of nuance in and of themselves that people are starting to get past that. But, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, that, that tequila one, I, I still can't do it. I had some that, I mean, the, the good thing was, yeah, it was terrible, but you could also use it to strip the wax off a tile floor. So that was pretty dope. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I can't do that to, to this very day because of that. Yeah. I mean, there are like, there, there are, I think tequila, um, is an exceptional spirit. It, it's, an agricultural spirit um, uh, and having when you start to really get into terroir of spirits that are unlike other things that are just stripped down barley that's been um, really more about the aging process in barrel um, for some whiskeys 
Um, and you're talking about some um, younger tequilas that really show their place and stuff like that. You can get into some very high uh, quality experiences with tequila. Um, but I think it's great to see people are experiencing and appreciating. Um, there's a little bit of oversaturation in it and, and the demand is really hampering what can be sustained in that market. Um, um, but as a spirit in and of itself, I think it, it's something that uh, maybe I should send you a bottle of something that, that you'll uh, can enjoy sipping on similarly to the way that you would in, in your whiskey world. Well, so it, I, it's interesting. You, you mentioned tequila is very much having a moment. We have a, a couple of buddies who are on yes. another podcast. Uh, they're out in California. They're probably going to be mm-hmm. we're probably doing a crossover episode here at some point, bigger right. things to come there. But uh, our buddies at spirit of time, uh, Matt and Greg are very into the tequila and mezcal scene. Uh, but I, I think a lot of that has to do with just their geography. I think it's starting yeah. American Southwest, Southern California, Arizona, a lot, a lot quicker than it has, mm-hmm. you know, hit the Midwest, but you're very much right. It is very much having a moment. And there are, there are definitely versions of that, like the mezcal, the smoky, or the the. Yeah, I, I haven't experienced a ton of them, but they're almost like a, again, a, you're like you said, a very good sipping beverage, something you can enjoy mm-hmm. versus what you remember from your days in your you know teens and twenties, ripping shots. That you know, tequila is the, the 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 one that you're going to go out and have a good time with, not not necessarily something to be enjoyed. Um, and I think yeah. the I'm excited to see where that goes. I'm excited to kind of get involved in that movement as it were and have somebody oh, sure. who knows I what mean, they're like, doing, take me down that path. Yeah. I mean, tequila, um, tequila and mezcal, like you can get, there is a straight line. This is just booze. Let's get you messed up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, there's a whole side of it of about um, age of spirit. Um, and then you're just talking about um, geography and how things age differently, the closer you get to the equator. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a fun side to just explore and delve into. Um, but then you're talking, when you get into mezcals, you're talking about process that is um, oftentimes still really unmechanized. Um, so you get these characteristics that are, uh, the only thing that I would say that wrote, maybe relates to more about what you guys are familiar with when you're getting into single malts, especially like Isla scotches and stuff yeah. like that, that have some really funky, um, like almost blue cheesy, smoky stuff going on. Um, like that's something that you can really find, like, um, there's this, uh, uh, term, uh, rancio, like rancid qualities mm-hmm. that are quality qualities that you're actually looking for in a positive way. Hmm. Um, that, uh, is more, I think that's more in like the sherry world, but like similarly into mezcals, you can find these characteristics that are un- unlike anything you've ever seen in any other spirits category. And that goes to these very traditional processes of crushing the peanuts of the um, uh, agave with stones and, and donkeys that are pulling the um, stone. I mean, like you're, you're getting into these processes of like the fermentation where they roast the, the pina in these almost like bonfires and let them ferment in the ground. And you're like, all right, that's all coming through in the spirit. Like when you distill it, that's what you're getting out. Um, and that's nothing, nothing like the, the tequila that you're, that people are familiar with. Yeah. Hey, quick aside, Sherry is a, a beverage that I want to like, if only so I can fully embrace my inner Fraser crane or Niles crane, depending <laughs> on Sherry how Niles? I'm feeling. Sherry Niles? Yes. Uh, my uh, grandpa who listens will love that reference because Frasier was one of his uh, favorite shows. I think they actually took it off Netflix recently. 
It's so good. (laughs) Anyone that has any other opinion about that show than it is so good, just rewatch it. It's hilarious. There's definitely things you pick up on. and, And I think a lot of shows this goes for a lot of things that you pick up on as a more educated adult than you did when you watched them originally yeah. when you were a child. Um, yeah. And let's be real. The three of us were children when Frasier was on. <laughs> it was yeah. on forever though. Like he was, you know, you go back to his cheers days. Yes, he was. <laughs> yes. Um, so do you have any, okay. C- c- now that we are in um, uh, the, this, uh, you know, more clear liquor realm. And I, I, other quick aside, and then we'll get off of it. I don't like vodka from a pure philosophical standpoint that it, it's not supposed to taste like anything that, that really upsets me. Anyway, do you have any <laughs> like suggestions as far as like a remedial gin for, for uh, us that, uh, you know, may have, may have done the, had the wrong sort of gin before. Um, I I would say like, so I'd go a couple of ways. Like they're in the gin world. um, The standard London drives um, are really what you should be using if you're making a Negroni. Um, So like beef eater um, is kind of the, to me, the go-to standard bearer of like the big house gins. Um, If you're looking for something that's maybe a little bit not that big house, Diageo, whatever, um, Heyman's is exceptional. Um, Sip Smith, um, Sip Smith, um, is, I think I've got a bottle of it on my shelf back there. Um, it's, um, weighty and oily, um, in a way that makes, uh, that provides a little bit more balance to some of the bracing or, uh, characteristics of juniper and everything else. Um, so Sip Smith is something that I think I, I would definitely point you in the direction of, um, and then there's new world stuff that's a lot more approachable. Um, like if you look at American gins, um, I'm not as familiar, um, outside of the New York market. Um, but local gins here, um, and when I've traveled elsewhere, they really embrace the citrus character, um, and express that a little bit more. Um, so you're not as strong on this piney juniper character that, probably is what is reminiscent of your bad experience um but uh um so tasting if you if you get if you talk to a cocktail nerd in your town and say hey what are some new world gins that i should be into they'll point you in the right direction of what's probably local um but some of the newer stuff that's obviously widely available hendrix is an is a version of a um i mean they add cucumber and uh uh rose um petal to the botanical build, which makes it a little bit softer. And they've been doing some really cool stuff with um, different releases um, that are all unique in their own right, kind of playing up how experimental Americans have been with the gin category. Gin, the gin category is wide open. Like you, there aren't as many uh, qualifications in the gin category to make gin. And again, that's for both good and bad. Um, but there's always something that's a little more accessible in the gin category hmm. um, if, if, if you're looking for somebody who can point you in that direction uh, the classics can be lean and 
um, kind of hard edge like beef eater, which is what I'm actually looking for when I'm building other things around it as a bartender. Um, but uh, local stuff is usually, if it's well regarded, um, is is definitely worth your time. So, like, if I wanted uh, a G and T for the summer, I should be looking for like a local New World gin. Uh, sip on it, listen to like Dvorak's New World Symphony. This is a nice, <laughs> yeah. nice summer night, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, and in the world of G and Ts and stuff like that, that's that's a, again another trend that's happening a lot in Spain, and it started to really popularize throughout cocktail bars over here. Um, is building gin and tonics and choosing your tonic properly and um, building other and putting fresh botanicals in the glass and starting to expand that. So um, a gin and tonic can be incredibly transformative as well. Um, but local producers, again, don't look, don't just walk into a local distillery and be like, hey, you're local, you must be good. Like that's, it's the same thing with beers. Like look for the, the top um, brewery in your area. They're going to give you the best beers that, um, um, otherwise you're, you might end up with something that's, uh, not quite to the taste that you're in standards you're expecting. Um, but they're every, I've, I've, I haven't traveled anywhere and not found, uh, in my recent travels that not found local distilleries that weren't turning out quality stuff like that, that, that's a bug that's caught nationwide. Um, and there's, there are talented people that are starting to realize that these are processes and things that, that you can embrace. There's, there's geeks everywhere <laughs> and, and um and yeah awesome yeah I, I i think that i i can rehabilitate my my tastes i mean certainly certainly with gin i mean yeah tequila i might take a little bit more work i'm, I'm not sure if i'm i'm truly um up to the task yet someday Something. One spirit at a time. Yes. Just check gin off your list and then go from there. Exactly. So, I mean, I've had terrible beer before and, and I still yeah. drink beer. So it, exactly. it can be done. I mean, flat yeah. keg beer that is in like two liter bottles. That's terrible beer. I, yeah. I still drink yeah. beer. <laughs> this is fair. Uh, one thing I was going to ask. So we, we've talked about a, a, a various numbers of spirits, cocktails. We've covered the Negroni, the Boulevardier, the Manhattan um what what's kind of a cocktail that's off the beaten path that features vermouth that that we either either may have tried or may have forgotten about like what would be a kind of a unique drink for us to make with with your spirit specifically so we've obviously we've gotten kind of the big ones yeah. out of the way what's one that you would recommend we try uh it's a little bit different a little bit off the beaten path this now i'm curious i was like i feel like yeah. you would obviously be the person to ask this <laughs> Um, I mean, I can, I can kill two birds with one stone. Um, if you take sherry and vermouth, uh, there are a couple cocktails, the Adonis, um, cocktail and the bamboo, um, both have a history of kind of modification of the recipe. So, uh, the cool thing with vermouth is, is, uh, I mean, even the original Manhattan recipe was closer to 50-50 than it is this two-to-one now. Um, and so the recipes are really uh, flexible in how um, you want to use the vermouth. Um, and again, for vermouth, you're going to change the recipe. So the Adonis and the Bamboo are two cocktails that you should definitely um, uh, look for. 
um, the um, using uh, Oloroso sherry and dry sherry. Um, those are the kind of separations of the two. Um, and then with the dry sherry using dry vermouth, I usually cut with a little sweet vermouth, whereas the Oloroso, which is a little bit of a richer style vermouth, um, uh, married with sweet vermouth. Um, so you can kind of get a, uh, a, a kind of a scale that you can see as far as rich to dry um, in cocktails there. Um, others like the Americano, um, I think soda, like light, refreshing vermouth cocktails that we were talking about all these stirred, bitter, like um, drinks that maybe are your second or third drink in if somebody is trying to kind of just take an easy night at it. Um, but soda um, is a great elevating um, addition to vermouth. Um, unlocks the same way with like, it's like when you start adding water, bringing proof down of anything, you start to unlock a lot of aromas. And if you're adding carbonation, you're going to start getting other things that come out on the nose. Um, so the Americano cocktail, which is um, Campari and sweet vermouth um, with soda. Um, that's a great summer cocktail. Um, and then um, and just even vermouth and soda is fantastic. Like our um, vermouth. I can, uh, I can see that completely after having like, yeah. I'm sure Buzzy would say the same thing. That was some, I, I can see that being fantastic. It tastes like adult, uh, it tastes like adult root beer cola or something like this. It's got similar <laughs> characteristics and botanicals to those. Um, and um, so, yeah, like those are like in the summer, my jam is just the vermouth and soda with a orange section in it. Um, and that that really works um but think about it like aperol like you can do um it's a little bit spicier aperol um but like i said vermouth is incredibly versatile i take any base spirit that you're looking for from aged tequilas to rum to uh whiskey to brandy and doing 50 50s um so just equal parts and then starting to play from there uh, you start to find your own you start to realize how forgiving vermouth is and then how subjective your palate is. So if there's something, if you're like, hey, this is a little bit on the rich side, I maybe want to up the spirit a little bit. Like that's that's what bartenders and bars do. Um, is but they're trying to find the median ground that will satisfy a lot of palates. But like you've been to a cocktail bar and you're like, oh, here are like eight things that have ginger and pomegranate and everything else. It sounds crowd pleasing, and then there are there's this one drink on the menu that are like seven things that you have no idea what they are. You've never heard of and you order it. And it's like this dark, rich brooding cocktail. That's like the bartender being like, this is what I want to drink. So like <laughs> right. you can, that's like, like he's figured out and tailored, like this is my dark, boozy, bitter, stirred drink that's on the menu for like people who come in here and want to see what I could do with what I've got on my back bar. Um, that that's that's the game so like uh just playing with it and base spirits like that to me as a bartender taking two ingredients it putting them in a glass that informs a lot of what i can do from there so like finding two things that come together in the right proportions like you were saying with a manhattan if you have a good vermouth and you have a good whiskey you got a good cocktail like mm, right take two ingredients put them in the same glass see where they balance with each other and then you can start expanding off of that now I want to try something with a good a good tequila or a good mezcal. Like that, you you've piqued my interest there. Like it's okay. I want to yeah. try method with a mezcal and see where I can take that. Yeah, mezcal and Negroni is a good mezcal stuff. Like 
when you get into really good mezcals, there are a few spirits that I always feel a little bit weird mixing with. Um, mezcals are like, there are some that are entry level, smoky, basic. They're, they're like, um, like, especially at their price points and stuff like that, like definitely mixable. So I'm not mm-hmm. saying don't mix with mezcal, like for sure do. Um, when you start to get into some of the, the cooler esoteric stuff, um, those are stuff that you should be sipping. Like those yeah. are incredible spirits that like, it's the same thing with whiskey. Like mm-hmm. I love, I mean, nobody's going to hand me a bottle of um, like Weller or something that I'm just like, oh no, we should totally go make Manhattan's with this. It's like, no, no, no. Like, <laughs> like there's a reason, like put somebody who wants to experience that or, um, like getting into some, um, uh, older spirits. It's like, you can, you can, you absolutely can mix with them. But, um, at that point you're not in, enjoying them for the characteristic that they're being produced for. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, um, one thing, uh, with, with the sweet vermouth, we're absolutely supposed to store these things in the fridge, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. You had mentioned something at the beginning. It's wine. So it's fortified. So the, the thing you're fighting is oxidation and um, lower temperatures. Oxidation happens slower. Uh, same thing with any of your wines, your red wines, white wines. If you stick them in the fridge, they're going to last you longer and you can pour them out um, um, for a longer period of time. Um, the vermouth is not as fragile. Um, the alcohol, uh, the increase in alcohol and the sugar are both helping preserve them. Um, so out of fridge, um, and this would be like, if you're trying to hold to the exact character of the open bottle, uh, from fresh is about two weeks on your shelf in the fridge. You've got two months, three months plus, um, but, um, and that's being fresh. Yeah. Plenty of time. <laughs> that, that, that's that's that, like that's being precious. Like there are some people, and like there are vermouths that are aged in barrel. That oxidation is part of the process. So um, all you're doing is it, the, the flavor starts to evolve and change at that point. It's not going bad on you. It's just going to taste different than a freshly opened bottle. Um, and some people welcome that. I'm I'm not opposed to that. Like I I like uh, same thing. If you get a good red wine it tastes different on day two three and four if it's a greatly if it's a fantastically structured wine that can go that long um then you're you're uh, I, it's rare that a bottle for me that's open gets that far but uh, <laughs> but if it does and it's structured well and it can last that long like you start to get more it's like kind of like watching a flower bloom uh, like it um uh, before the petals start falling off and stuff like that, you want to enjoy it. Um, but you start to see it evolve um, as it's sitting there. Cool. That is, that is good to know. I, that, that said though, in the fridge, I would, in I would, the fridge, I would venture to guess um, I will go ahead and finish the bottle of method well before it yeah. gets to the point where it does. Yeah, not and taste that's, 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 that's where the, yeah, that's where the vermouth and soda uh, starts to come in. Yeah. Yeah. I, we talk to people a lot and they're like, I just can never get through an entire bottle. It's like, then you're doing it wrong. <laughs> or soda. Like vermouth and soda. It's super like vermouth is essentially a bottled cocktail. It's brandy, it's wine, it's sugar, bitters. Like you've got a cocktail in a bottle, just pour it into a glass and drink it or add soda to it. Um, like if you're, if it's on an off night, like I'm, I spent over a decade making fancy drinks that took multiple um, 
techniques and, and stuff. When I get home, it's just that and another spirit poured into a glass and stirred with my finger. Like it's not, it doesn't have to be like, uh, like it doesn't have to be over the top complicated to make a great drink. Um, and vermouth is a great way to get you 90% of the way there. That must be why I can make that Manhattan based on color. If I've got yeah. the right ingredients of a, of a good enough quality, I should just be able to put them in the glass, stir mm-hmm. it around to get enough of the, the, um, syrup from the, uh, Luxardo cherry in there too, to add a little yeah. bit more sweetness. And, uh, it's good enough for me. So that's, uh, that's, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah. Without a doubt. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm super interested <laughs> too to, to try some more historical Manhattans, like closer to half and half. I'm yeah. pretty interested sure. in that one yeah. as well. Um, yeah. I mean the, the style. So again, when you get back into tradition, um, rye would have been the spirit event bourbon was still um more of a regional spirit um and rye being a little bit on the drier spicier side for richer style vermouth which method is um it that those go well together um in that space so i definitely recommend going rye that's not space for your weeded bourbon (laughs) no no i well that was it was funny because buzzy and i were talking about this like he had like, we had kind of tried it with a couple of different bourbons. Obviously I, I made yeah. a Rob Roy with scotch, which that was actually fantastic. That was fantastic. Right. And the scotch yeah. that I was using the founder's reserve kind of teeters on that edge between scotch and bourbon because they finish it in first fill American oak barrels, um, okay, cool. which actually gives it a little bit more of a, like it adds a little bit more of the right flavor. If you're kind of looking for more of that, like I love a Manhattan. So I was like, I don't want this to be too different, but it was a nice yeah. change of pace. Um, but yeah, I mean the 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 rye just like and Buzzy and I were talking earlier. Like he he tr- we both tried it with a little bit of Weller, which you're right, weeded bourbon doesn't really work as well. Oh, the Buffalo popular. Trace, the yeah. Buffalo Trace though, the yeah. regular Buffalo. their regular run of the mill works great because it's a little bit more of a spicier yeah. one. Um, the Maysville rye is fantastic. I gotta imagine that with the Mictors or any of the other ryes that I like, mm-hmm. it'd be fantastic. Although. The one you mentioned earlier that that was uh, in your glass, I, I think I got I gotta go try to find that. Um, yeah, the ragtime rye. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So in New York, um, New York has its own designation for whiskey now, um, called empire rye. Um, and it's all New York rye, um, and celebrating our agricultural product here and that trend toward, uh, cause like when you're talking about ryes that are coming from bourbon producers, you're talking about stuff that's like 55% rye at yeah. most, like you're like, it's, t- it's just just enough to call it rye. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're talking about ragtime, I think they're at 77, 76%. Um, and these other ryes, they're, they're stronger on that character, which means it's, I like, it's, it's the difference between cornbread and rye bread. Like it's the grain <laughs> has that impact. So, mm-hmm. um, um, that, that's one of the cool things we did a ton of work when we we're, um, developing the vermouth in with other empire rye. Um, and they have like, Again, they're, they're everything from expressing the grain really well to different empire rise up here that do great um, aging. And, and now that distilleries have been around long enough that they can start to get in those higher age brackets of whiskeys, it's been really cool to see what uh, releases that have been coming out from them. So, um, yeah, um, rye is definitely making its way, especially in um, cocktail bars and stuff here in New York. It's, it's becoming kind of the standard well, I mean, that, that makes, like, like you said, I kind of, 
given the sweetness of, of, of method in the, the flavor mm-hmm. palette, like that, that to me, you know, after having that in the glass by itself, it's like, Oh, this, this needs a good spicy rye to take on the the sweetness. It, yeah. it appears, like I said, that, that might've been the best Manhattan I've ever made. And it was me after two other cocktails mixing up by sight. And like you said, right ingredients, they just mix well in the glass. Yeah. It, it might've, it, it was, it was definitely closer to two to one. Um, but yeah, I, I'm with Buzzy. I almost almost want to start going more, you know, 50-50 and kind of seeing where it goes. But um, before we forget, since we're we're nearing, we, we've we've gone well over an hour as we were, you know, not really shocked. We <laughs> figured that would happen. Where can we find you on Instagram? Where can we find the brand? How can we, if we're not in the greater New York area, how do we, um, Buzzy was smart enough to figure this out. So if Buzzy can figure it out, although not everybody is a mechanical engineer. So, you know, where can we find, where can we order the product from? Where can we get it? Um because if you're if you're a cocktail drinker, if you're a Manhattan drinker, if you like Negronis, I would absolutely recommend this because this has been I've had it for two days and it's delicious. I don't know how long that bottle's gonna last. Nowhere near <laughs> two months, I can tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah, so um you can find me personally at a drinking man on Instagram. Um our company, Method Spirits, is just at Method Spirits. Um on our website, if you're in the New York area. Um, we have a map of where you can buy us and what restaurants and bars are carrying us. So you can go enjoy a cocktail there. Outside of New York, um, there's uh, you can go to Mash and Grape um, online. Um, they've been a fantastic supporter of ours, and they have uh, pretty low uh, um, delivery fees nationwide. And, and they deliver um, pretty much to every state that they can uh, in the um, in the U.S. And then uh, if if for any reason you can't get it from there, you can send an email to me and I can connect you to somebody. Uh, but there are some other shops that, that ship nationally. Um, but yeah, um, we're just in New York distribution currently just been in sales for a little over a year. Um, we'll definitely be expanding that map, um, as we can, but I can only knock on so many doors, um, and, and get out there myself. So, um, it's that, it's, that's been the, the, the road to market so far. Uh, but yeah, the Northeast uh, to come and then probably in the major markets like Chicago and California, um, the years to come pretty soon. That's awesome. Well, you know, we've, we've really enjoyed having you on, uh, really been enjoying uh, the cocktails, really been enjoying the product. Um, you know, like I said, I would encourage any of our listeners who are a little bit more uh, into those types of beverages, uh, try to find a way to get a bottle because it's absolutely fantastic. We really appreciate you coming on and hanging out with us. Um, We'll have to see if you know Buzz's roommate here when we when we press the record <laughs> yeah. off button. I do a little bit more catching up and reminiscing, but uh, Corey, it's it's been absolutely fantastic to have you. Wish the, wish you the best of luck. Um, let us know when the driver move comes out. Um, yeah, love, love to talk yeah. about that again. Love to have you yeah. back on. Um, maybe do uh, sure. with uh, with our buddies at Spirit of Time have kind of a crossover episode. Get into some drinks. Get into some how to yeah. use the product the right way. Um, some, some fun things like that, but, uh, I, I would, I'm really excited to see what you guys have coming out next. Uh, really excited. Um, that's me saying that three times because I've had three cocktails tonight. <laughs> uh, my grandpa will joke. I didn't laugh a lot. Grandpa, he jokes that I giggle too much when I've had a few many to drink. Um, but we'll get there. Um, but you know, when you, when you have somebody who's got such a delicious spirit, um, that he's produced, you've got to sample it with all the different bottles you have in the house to see which one, which one it works best with. So really appreciate really you coming on. Yeah, exactly. So we uh, we wish you the best of luck, and, and we'll definitely uh, definitely keep an eye out for what you've got coming out next. Cheers. Thank you. It's been a blast. Thank you. Been, been-
been big fun. Mm-hmm. See ya.